Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, all you hitchhikers on the Information Superhighway. Welcome aboard our big rig that we've christened Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. The good news is that for the next 45 minutes, you'll be smooth cruising all the way to the horizon. So get comfy, strap yourself in, and say hello to the driver who's about to give us all a guided tour of the future. G'day, Matt. That's a lovely flannelette shirt and trucker's cap you're wearing. Oh, don't you love the idea of hitchhiking still? I haven't done it for a long time, but the thrill... I've never hitchhiked. Really? Oh, no, it's, it's a thrill to hitchhike. <laughs> yeah. And again, I haven't done it for a long time, but you never know who you're going to meet. You never know the conversation <laughs> you're getting involved with. I used to hitchhike a bit when I was a kid, so... Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a thrill. An adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An adventure, and I, for some reason, maybe I'm getting a bit old-fashioned now, but I don't think I'd feel safe either being a hitchhiker or hitchhike E anymore. Yeah. But yeah, my, look, my dad used to do it all the time. He'd pick up hitchhikers and they'd get in the car and we'd have a conversation with some guy and find out all sorts of random information. Look, I've picked up one hitchhiker and regretted it immediately. <laughs> really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a quick trip. It was a short trip, but right. um, yeah, it was long enough. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, look, hopefully we'll give people a 45-minute exciting adventure as we go today. That's right. Strap yourselves in, folks. We'll give that horn a blast and get rolling. Now, here's a cryptic one to kick us off for the week. Get this, folks. DS Penske is in strife for installing an RFID scanner in the pits at Formula E in Oregon. Matt, help us out here. What the <laughs> hell am I just talking about? <laughs> I'm a bit of a fan. I've talked about before about Formula One racing, and I do like the technical innovations and just they're looking for literally thousandths of a second with some of the changes they're making. Now, this is Formula E, though, it's, so that's electric Formula One. That's right. So it's basically Formula One, but they're doing it all electric. And I, I do love watching that as well. One of the things that I love, and I showed my son there one day, and he said, it's just like Mario Kart, the game, because <laughs> they do have sections of the track they can go over, and when they go over those sections of the track, they get a boost for oh, really? uh, yeah, for a certain number of laps or a certain amount of time. I think it is actually not so much laps. So you'll strategize about when you might go and get that extra boost you do at the beginning of the race and try and get right. out in front or do it later on the race and try and overtake. Are you allowed to flip a banana out the back? <laughs> is it? That's the next thing. That's yeah. exactly what my son said. He said, can they do an oil spill or a <laughs> banana? <laughs> So it, it does great, but it is also fantastic about trying to move the technology along, move the performance of electric vehicles. Obviously, so many things we have in our vehicles now came about on the racetrack with innovations that occurred there. And with this particular one, again, in Formula E, they're looking for every little gain they can get. One of the things they have in Formula E teams is information on the tyres, how much tyre wear, how much or what temperature they're running out, what pressure's running in these tyres. Now, this is designed for each individual team to look at their data, and they've got RFID scanners on their tyres that can actually, or not a scanner on their tyre, but information, they use a scanner to pull the information off the tyre so they can actually track all that information. They right. can do it out on the track, they can do it when it comes back into the pits. What they're trying to do is gain as much information as they can about the performance of the tyres so they can improve the performance. But... DS Penske thought, I'm not getting quite enough information from the tyres on our cars. 
What about if I had all the information from oh, every car right. out there on the track? <laughs> so strategically plan your pit stops for your own cars. and yeah. Well, just gathering information. And see, Michelin had the contract for a long time. I think something like eight seasons, Michelin had the contract to supply the tyres. And this seems to be the go in, whether it's MotoGP or Formula One, there'll be one tyre manufacturer because they want to make sure that at least that part of the competition is even and then they vary all the other components. And they've just changed over to hand-cooked tyres. So now you've got new tyres, you need more information, how they're performing on different tracks. So it's very new in the information gathering. Logically, after eight seasons, they probably had lots of information about the Michelin tyres. So Dez Penske, very cleverly, but illegally, <laughs> thought that they might just put an RFID scanner at the pit entrance. So as wow. each car, every car, every team came back, they're all using the same tyres, so logically they've got the same RFID information there. So as each car came through, they were picking up all the data from all of these other tyres. Wow. Then they could look at that data and see what was happening. And In particular, this is during the practice sessions where they can say, well, we know that car was out for five laps and that was ten laps and they were doing this in those particular runs or they were using these type of tyres. So they got to gather all this information together and then they could make better decisions about what they do with their tyres. Now, flip this over a little bit, I do love the idea that normal cars might have one day some information that is being scanned by the car as you drive along to give you all this information. At the moment, most cars, the best you'll get is a readout to say the tyre pressure. Yeah. But you do notice when you have your car parked in the garage and it's cold, in a Tesla, for example, 42 PSI is the recommended tire pressure. Yeah. It's only a bit old-fashioned now using Imperial, aren't I? But yeah, I know. And it frustrates me when it comes up on the uh, on the app. PSI, what? But, but it's still, I don't yeah, know, for some reason, it still seems something that we still use. But sitting in the garage, that temperature or that pressure might drop a little bit as the temperature drops. And then, of course, you go and drive on a hot day and you've got hot bitumen and the sun's beating down and mm. you might, with a bit of friction with those tires, you might get up to, say, 46 what does that do to the performance of the tyres? What does that do to the performance of the car? You might get also information about temperature and pressure, which you don't get now. And uh, just for my year 11 chemist, that's Boyle's Law, isn't it? Boyle's Law. Yeah, good work. It's spelled <laughs> B-O-Y-L-E, of course. Right. Yep. Yep. So you get this information. Now, that, again, doesn't happen now, but you might end up with RFID chips in tyres in production cars at one stage after all the information that's being gathered here. But in this scenario, it's just trying to make those cars perform at the absolute best with all this gathering of information. So what they did was illegal, but what I thought was interesting from all of that is just this information gathering. Mm. There's so much information being gathered by these teams to try and improve their performance. How much of that might translate to cars in the real world? Well, I think at some stage, a fair bit. Yeah, and probably not in the too distant future, I would say. Exactly right. If they're doing it now and they're embedding these chips and these tyres now, they've obviously got the technology there. It's just how much do you want to pay for that technology? Worthwhile on the track when you're trying to gather these few thousandths of a second in your home environment, in a car, you're probably not trying to get those thousandths of a second, but you're mm. trying to be safer yeah. when you're driving. A car tyre at the wrong pressure can be dangerous. I love the fact that many cars now come up with warnings when your pressure has dropped a bit too low because that can affect the performance, especially in a hard braking scenario. Yeah. But again, add in there the temperature, add in there the tyre wear, for example. I think all this information is great. As far as the DS Penske team is concerned, 25,000 euros they were fined. And their two drivers will have to start at the back of the grid for the next race. It doesn't seem like quite enough of a penalty, in my opinion, for what looked like a fairly 
significant orchestrated process yeah. to steal data from other teams. Well, it all depends on how many bananas the uh, people in front of you are going to throw <laughs> on that false corner. Maybe in the next race they'll be allowed to throw out some bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Here's one for the wine lovers. If you're not sure about which bottle to get for your next special occasion, there is a new app that'll hopefully take the headache out of the purchase. It uses AI to match the wine to the personality. Matt, I've had friends and family that would argue that all bottles are good bottles. (laughs) But now we're pairing what wine with what food and what personality as well. And I'm not sure if it will take the headache out of it the next morning. So Uh, uh, wine in moderation, of course, is what we'd recommend strongly here. But I am not very good at restaurants when someone says, what sort of wine do we get? I'm not a wine snob. Mm. It seems like it smells and tastes okay, then I'm okay with that. But every party, every group will have someone who's the wine snob. Oh, what are you doing? Hand me the menu. I know what wine to pick and away they go. So I let them go for it and so be it. But I've always looked for a technology solution and now I have it. The app is called SIPD, S-I-P-P-D. And exactly as you said, you take information about you, the sort of colour, body, acidity, flavour, etc. that you like, even put in a price range for right. the wine you might like. And then with all that information, there's a couple of things that happen. The first thing is you can scan a barcode on a bottle of wine or in a wine list, you can actually type in the name of that and it will give you a score. So with all your preferences, you put in this and it says, oh, that score's 42. Oh, that's not very good. You want a score out of 100. So you might get a 98. Oh, great. That sounds like a wine that will be just the type of wine that I like. But then it goes further. Of course, it's got a bit of AI mixed in. When you have that wine, you then say what you thought of that wine. So it updates. You'll remember that for correct, the next time. Updates all your information. So the next time, it'll take that little bit of extra information plus what you already put in. And the next bottle of wine, it'll say, oh, this is one more towards your liking. So it helps <laughs> with that. Now, I don't know how it would go in a group situation. Ten people sitting around a table at a dinner party. What sort of wine do you want? Well, it's hard to get all the preferences for all of those people around the table. So I guess you just stick with your preferences. So you'll get a bottle that you like <laughs> and hope that everyone else tunes in. The only minor issue at the moment is that particular app is only available for US wines. And you can imagine there's a lot of information to put in for all the wines around the world. So they focused on the US so far. They've got about 100,000 users already on oh, the app. Wow. So they're gathering a lot of information. Yeah. And this AI basically takes this information and really can crunch all that together to get better recommendations. But over in Norway, there's a similar app called Fimpavin, F-I-N-P-A-V-I-N. does the same sort of thing, but again, only with local Norwegian wine. So that's a bit of a problem here. But I can imagine it won't be that long before we amass enough of a database around the world that you'll be able to get one that'll work in Australia, for example, and you'll be able to do a scan of a wine that will know what that wine is and have that information. But there are so many wines. That's the problem. That's the problem. All this information you, know, you put in. When I first looked at this story, I thought to myself about that Bruce's sketch from Monty Python back in the 70s um, and Chateau Nuisar Wagga Wagga, which is apparently <laughs> a good fighting wine for those people who like to get have a couple of drinks and then get the punch on. Um, yeah. So <laughs> perhaps is, is there any perhaps proof it might if, get really creative. Everyone talks about, oh, my mate gets on rum and he gets aggro, but I'm not convinced that alcohol does anything different is, yeah, depending on what right. it's mixed with or the way it tastes. I'm All sure it makes it's just you alcohol. do is think you're a better fighter. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Shadow Nuisa Wagga Wagga is a good fighting wine. Good, good. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this is what the wine experts have had to say. For some reason, 
they're not a big fan of the idea of an app to help you choose a wine. Firstly, it might do them out of a job, which I can oh, understand that fear. But the other thing they say is that it takes away that discovery and surprise. But when I'm paying good money for a bottle of wine, especially at a restaurant where you pay a lot more, yeah. I'm okay without a surprise because that surprise sometimes is not a nice surprise. That's right. It sounds like another Monty Python sketch. <laughs> it does. Something it jumps does. out of the bottle and spears you through the face. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> but I'm I'm okay with a bottle of wine that I'm pretty confident that I'm going to like while I'm sitting at a restaurant paying for it and let other people discover wines for me maybe. That's where wine experts might come in. But you'll still discover different wines and you might actually be a bit braver because you might scan a few different wines and find, well, I've never thought about that one, but now that I've got a recommendation that's given me a score of 85, oh, well, I think that's close enough. I think I'll have a go at that one. So you might actually try other wines as well. Yeah. Hard to say, but again... Well, we'll see how it goes. The proof will be in the pudding and we'll see how many people um, pick it up. Inspired by kirigami, that's kirigami, not origami. Now, kirigami is the Japanese art of paper cutting. There comes a new adhesive tape that holds so well, yet it peels off so easily. Matt, anyone who struggles with Christmas at Christmas time with wrapping and unwrapping is going to love this. As long as there's arrows on it. I think that's the important thing. Yeah, arrows yeah. on the sticky tape so you're not struggling one Christmas way. designed arrows or something like <laughs> that. Something yeah, like yeah. that because you're pulling away going, no, no, you're going the wrong way. Oh, that's easier that way. But it's fascinating, isn't it? People are still developing sticky tape. Yeah. I thought we'd nailed sticky tape. I thought we had it pretty well right. <laughs> and you've got duct tape if you want something really strong. And you've yeah, got yeah. other types of sticky tape. and So... Th- Surely we've got it okay. We don't need to develop it further. The way my father unwraps presents is he very carefully peels off the sticky tape so it doesn't oh. tear the paper so you right. can reuse the paper. Oh, good work. Yeah, yeah. Well, he would love this. He thing. would love this. And I do love the fact that you're using a very old art form in terms of paper cutting kirigami, as you mentioned there, to actually come up with something. Now, the concept here is that you can get a sticky tape that is okay to peel off, and if it's too easy to peel off, it probably doesn't actually have a lot of strength in it. But what they do with kirigami is when they cut it in a certain way, they're peeling it off in one direction, which actually has the main part of it folding off and then peeling away from the edge. When you're peeling the other direction, it's trying to get the edge. And so that's where it's getting the strength out of it so that each edge is trying to break that grip. Right. By doing that, you could do something, for example, like hang a picture on a wall in one direction, obviously pulling down, it's got the strength on it. And then when you want to peel it off, you just peel it up the wall. So they say 60 times stronger than normal sticky tape by having these various cuts in the actual sticky tape itself. That's crazy. It is, for just for putting some cuts in it. So the same adhesive, the same chemical process, the same bonding, but with cuts in it, you get 60 times the strength. So hanging things on a wall, I get that. The other thing they... Sid, as an example, is that you might be able to use it, for example, in manufacturing, manufacturing robots or electronics, things that you might want to take apart easily but need to be held together strongly. So again, as you peel it over in one direction, it's holding it down, you need to take it apart for whatever reason, then you can just peel it off quite easily. So it's more than just Christmas presents. There are some other applications you might get out of something like this. Not since the post-it note. Not since the invention of the post-it note have we seen something so revolutionary. Well, I think you're right. And they actually even talked about that. The post-it note obviously is not very sticky in terms of you wouldn't go and try and put a picture on the wall. I understand the glue that was used on them was actually a, uh, a... 
a dud batch of glue that uh, a guy had created or whatever, and then thought, oh, hang on, I wonder what would happen if we just stuck some, you know, some, some blotter paper uh, together with it and uh, and use it as a notepad. And then, lo and behold, we got post-it notes. That's right. Thank one of those famous mistakes. Famous mistakes. Yeah, it's a bit like a penicillin. It's a it's a famous mistake that Absolutely. now is used every day. So even using that, though, even using the low bonding of a post-it note by cutting it in the right way, that's when you can get something that's very grippy in one direction and mm. not so grippy in the other direction. So again, I love the concept of that. I love the idea that we're still developing things like this. I still think they've got to come up with a solution for the end of a bit of sticky tape that you can never find. That's another problem <laughs> yeah. altogether. <laughs> and when you haven't got fingernails like me, yeah. That's right, you're rubbing over the end. I can feel it there somewhere maybe. Yeah. Maybe they could have something that changes colour when it's exposed to the air. So when you cut it, that's the bit that changes colour. But mm. maybe I'm going too far and maybe just use a no, dispenser. The idea's there now. No, no, the idea's there. And someone's got to come up with a plan to fix it. That's exactly right. After they start using this. So keep an eye for this. You'll see some products coming out. I think within the next year, Virginia Tech has developed this technology and I think Virginia Tech will try and enable this to be used or patent this to be used by sticky tape manufacturers around the world. Thank you, Kirigami. And now for a story to annoy people who are dead set against wind farms. Apparently wind farms are no noisier than traffic. Matt. This is a minor emergency. We're running out of genuine complaints about wind farms now. Oh, no, no. No, There'll be more. Don't worry. There'll be some other excuses to come up with. This is a legal case on the Bald Hills wind farm. And, of course, there were some people nearby complaining about the wind farm noise or the wind turbine Mm. noise. So they conducted a study at Flinders University. They took 68 participants. They had the equivalent of 460 sleep study nights. And they basically set the participants up with seven consecutive nights in the sleep lab. Not a bad job to get. Your job is to go in the sleep lab and go to sleep. Okay, (laughs) what do I do now? And then they played noise that was from a wind farm or the noise that was from traffic to gauge the different sleep patterns that people might have. What they found out of that process is that people sleeping with the wind farms tended to sleep okay. People that slept with the road noise had less sleep or more wake-ups than the people near wind turbines. And they put this down to a couple of reasons. One was the road noise was actually more, so the wind turbines didn't produce anywhere near as much noise as people had claimed. But the other part was that the road noise is intermittent. It's very unusual to have a road nearby that's just got a constant stream Mm. of the same sound, whereas a wind turbine is pretty much the same sound. But I actually... I'm not convinced there's a lot of sound that comes out of a wind turbine because I've stood underneath them and I can hear the what I call the whoosh, whoosh as the tip goes above me. And I'm talking about directly above me. Yeah. I move away a few metres and all I can hear is wind noise because guess what? They put wind turbines where it's windy. So you tend to hear more wind noise than you do the actual turbine noise. So you're in trouble if your bedroom is directly underneath... <laughs> The bottom of a wind turbine. That's right. If you build your bedroom underneath (laughs) the blade of a wind turbine. If someone builds their wind turbine in your backyard. (laughs) That's right. So maybe that's the the solution here. Don't build a turbine on top of someone's house and you should be okay. (laughs) The other complaint, of course, they give is the ultra-low frequencies. Now, the human ear, when we were much Mm. younger, 20 hertz up to 20,000 hertz or 20 kilohertz is about the range of human hearing. But, of course, by the time you get to my age, I certainly don't have 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz anymore. But the ultra-low frequency is one of the issues that people complain about as well. Now, they try to do testing on that. 
yes, there are some ultra-low frequency sounds that come out of a wind turbine, but we can't hear them. Mm. Are they really getting into our body and affecting something in some way or somehow? Well, when you think about 20 hertz, that's 20 taps per second or 20 beats per second, Mm. and you can almost make out each individual beat, right? So it's just like someone tapping you with a very gentle stick there. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Look, yeah. Well, there's been no proof of any ill effects from that low frequency sound at this stage if you can, in fact, set it up to actually hear it or feel it. And that was another experiment that I've seen done, not this particular one. This one was really just about the noise, which effectively the result of this was that, no, the noise is not going to affect your sleep. The noise is not really there at all. And we've got a, a study with research and independent study to prove that. But the other one I've seen is where they would put people in a house nearby and they'd say, we've got wind turbines over there. And each night or each hour, you don't know whether the wind turbine is spinning or not. Let's see if you can mark on a on a graph whether or not right now you can feel that low frequency uh, sound. Yeah, right. And all that people were able to do was about the same as guessing. Yeah. So there was no... Random, random chance. Random chance, that's exactly right. So there was no proof that they could feel the low frequency sounds coming out of the wind turbine. So again, the example I always give is if someone said to me, I want to build a wind turbine next year, a wind farm or a coal-fired power station, I'd be taking the wind farm every single day. Thank you very much. The Hyundai Ionic 6. I always have trouble saying that name. Hyundai Ionic. It's one of those bit of a tongue twisters, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the, the Ionic 6 has just been given a massive pat on the back with a top MPG rating. Now, if you don't know what an MPG rating is, think about this. Matt, I was going to say, if I didn't know any better, I'd say it sounds like miles per gallon. Hmm. Is that right? That's right. Uh, in which case, I'm asking, where are you going to stash the gallon in an Ionic 6, in the glove box perhaps? Well, it's a bit tricky because we've got an MPG rating, which we've been familiar with for years, and now we've got an MPG rating because <laughs> we've got an MPGE <laughs> rating. Right. Okay. And so how do you say MPGE? E, you probably no. say MPGE. So that's another tongue twister. <laughs> that's what I'm going to call it from now on. <laughs> What's really interesting is that we still talk about miles per gallon, even though we went metric in about 66, I think, yeah, from memory. No. So There's be, everything wrong with that be, phrase. Be, before we were born. <laughs> and in Australia, we typically talk about litres per 100 kilometres, but people still sound familiar. The same as we talk about PSI, we still feel mm. familiar with MPG, miles per gallon. For some reason, it seems to be a broader range of numbers, and mm. so numbers we're more familiar with. And immediately you said to someone, I'm getting five miles per gallon, and people go, oh, that's terrible economy. Or if you said I'm getting 30 miles per gallon, oh, it's pretty good economy. So people inherently seem to know that. But when you start quoting litres per 100 kilometres, it's a bit harder. Mm. But this is based from a story out of the US where they're trying to give some sort of economy rating to EVs. Now, the interesting part here is most of the time we don't seem to care about the economy rating. Mm. We want to know the range of an EV. And I used to laugh when I'd read specs of cars, internal combustion engine cars, where you'd look at the range of the car and you go, well, it's a bit irrelevant. You can make the range better by putting a bigger tank. Is that really what you're trying to say about this car? This tank's got a bigger petrol tank than that car. So big deal. But obviously with EVs, it's a little bit different. Range is a bit bigger an issue because of the recharge time. But they wanted to try and get some sort of rating. Now, I have seen ratings with EVs that talk about kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres. And if you thought litres per 100 kilometres was a bit clumsy, mm. then kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres is even clumsier and a bit 
hard for people to understand as well. It's all a bit clumsy and complicated. Mm. So what some very clever people have done is they've said, well, people understand miles per gallon, so why don't we do the miles per gallon equivalent? So they've actually come up with the amount of energy in one gallon of petrol, and they've converted Uh, that to kilowatt hours. So they've said 33.7 kilowatt hours is the amount of energy, usable energy, in one gallon of gasoline, as they say in America. Mm. And then they say, how many miles can you get on that equivalent? So I don't mind the concept Mm. where you're saying there's a gallon of petrol, there's 33.7 kilowatt hours of electricity. What does that do for your car? And it allows you to get a number that you can compare directly with a Ford Mustang. (laughs) That's the important part, isn't it? So you can compare directly with old school and new school and also get an idea of as we get more EVs, you'll want to start looking at things like that. So how dear is it to run my EV? Well, what's the MPG rating? Then that gives you an idea of how expensive it is to run. So let's convert all that to some real numbers for you. We're going to be talking miles per gallon in the year 2100. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Well, America won't have moved off Imperial at that stage, so they'll still be talking MPGE, (laughs) perhaps. But let's, let's convert this to some real numbers. Again, I talk about a normal petrol car, 30 miles per gallon seems like pretty good economy. Most cars, I would guess, would be around 15, 20 miles per gallon, that type of thing. If you look at something like a Tesla Model 3, very popular vehicle, it gets 132 miles per gallon equivalent. So that's not bad yeah, compared to, say, 30. Good. Yep. The reason you mentioned the Hyundai Ionic 6 at the very beginning is because so far of all the cars they've done this equivalent on, the Ionic 6 is top of the pops. It gets 140 miles per gallon equivalent. So it's 33.7 kilowatt hours gives you 140 miles. And that's pretty awesome. That sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? And I often talk about it when people talk to me about EVs and the cost of EVs, etc. I say, you fill up your tank of petrol and drive however far they get you. Take 500 kilometres, for example. You get 500 kilometres. It's going to cost you to drive that 500 kilometres. It might cost you $100 in petrol. Well, you do the same in electricity, charging with, say, off-peak, assuming you're doing it at home rather than the free charger, it might cost you 7 or $8. So it gives you some idea of an equivalent. But now, if you've got an MPG equivalent rating, that gives you a way to, to compare that. The other reason that 33.7 kilowatt hours, as a random number as it sounds, is not a bad way to do a comparison, is that the average American household uses about 886 kilowatt hours of electricity per month, or roughly... 30 kilowatt hours per day. So when you look at how far you can get in your electric vehicle, that comparison of an MPGE rating is, well, the amount of electricity you use in your house, that gets you also some distance. So it gives you some way of Mm. recognising how much electricity does that, how much electricity is 33.7 kilowatt hours? Oh, I don't know. Well, if you think about all the electricity you use in all your house for a full day, okay, that gives me some idea of my stove, my fridge and my lights, etc. That gives me some idea of some sort of equivalent. So it does seem like a strange thing to look at, but I think we'll start to see more and more vehicles coming out with this sort of MPG equivalent rating as part of the overall specs we'll see. And I just had a visual image then of the goodies driving their house. Um, so, we, um, so we better move on to the next story, I think. Oh, I love it, I love it. <laughs> Richard Branson launched himself and a couple of new friends into space in July 2021 now. That's two years ago. 
Well, it's two years later and Virgin Galactic have debuted their space tourism campaign with Galactic One. You too can get yourself into space and Matt has the details and maybe a few free tickets for some lucky listeners. <laughs> Let me just go and check in my back pocket for those free tickets. The only I said maybe. Maybe, thank you, thank yeah. you. They're only US $450,000 each yeah, at this right. stage. Okay. And they might find it hard selling some tickets because, of course, we've had that tragedy with the Titan Submersible mm. where people paid $300,000 US to get on that. So maybe people will be a little bit reluctant to jump on something that's got an expensive ticket for something that feels like you're part of an experiment. Mm. But so far at this stage, the first flight went up on the 29th of June, had three individuals from Italy that were on that flight. It was called the very unimaginative Galactic 01. Mm. Is that the best they could come up with? But anyway, obviously they didn't spend much of their budget on the naming process. But this is something that's been a long time coming. Now, you will remember that they started test flights, Virgin Galactic, way back about 10 years ago, back in 2013. And they had. I remember there was big news. They They were anticipating being open as a spaceport for 2015. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. I think the real thing that happened was they had that crash, if you remember, the yeah. versus Enterprise in about 2014. Oh, they had engineers walking off the job saying, no, I don't want any part of this anymore. Yeah. 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 So a few setbacks along the way. The other setback, slight setback, is that they've sunk about $500 million into the project so far without any paying passengers until now. So there's a fair bit for them to make up. No wonder they're charging 450 grand a ticket. But I think the good part here is that it's happening. So we've got obviously more than just Virgin Galactic. Of course, you've got Blue Origin up there as well. They've been doing some flights as well. We're seeing competition Mm. in space tourism. And of course, there's the argument about where is space? What is the definition of space? I think most people are pretty happy if they can go up undo their seatbelt and float around for a little bit of time They'll and say, into space. yeah, I, I've been in a microgravity situation, therefore I've been in space. Let's not argue about which line we're going to cross as to whether or not it's space or not. So when the sky goes black, I think you can say you've been in space and it's not night time. <laughs> that's right. And if you can look down and see the Earth yeah. as a globe yep. rather than seeing a bit of ground, then that seems pretty you reasonable You can see as Australia well. out through the window <laughs> yeah, as right. an entire country, yeah. yeah I, th- I think that's reasonable. So this has started, but at four fifty grand, they're not going to get a lot of passengers yet. But if you remember, or we don't remember when it first started, but back in 1921 when Qantas started flying, tickets were for the very rich. Now, obviously mm. at this stage, tickets are for the very rich, but surely prices are going to come down. They're going to get back the R&D money. They're going to get the stage where you might be able to go up for a flight for five or ten minutes up there in space for $10,000 or whatever mm. it might be. And I'm sure that's when you will have someone like Tech Talk giving away free tickets <laughs> <laughs> as a competition or someone on a special anniversary or a special birthday, a few friends kicking in some money and saying, we're going to fly you to space. And I think there'll be enough flights that will have gone to space, given the fact that it's relying on the same concepts that we use every day in terms of flying planes. I think this is a bit safer than going 3.8 kilometres underwater. So yeah. I think there'll be people who will be okay with doing this. But it's just another frontier we're breaking through, isn't it? It's just fascinating. And hopefully we can uh, put an end to the Flat Earth Society, perhaps? Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe, well, look, that's an interesting question. From space, you're looking down at a globe, but it kind of looks just two-dimensional, doesn't it, from that far? It just looks like a circle. So it's pretty hard to see the sphere <laughs> from up there. So maybe that'd be a good way for a flat earther. Look, if you give me a, a trip for free up there, I'll confirm with everyone that the Earth but is But surely you'd be able to see the bigger disc. 
Surely the other disc, yeah, the other one that it's all sitting on. Mm. That one you mean? And the dome. Yeah, well, you'd be able to, okay, so you've got Australia underneath you, but you'd also be able to see off in the distance America and China and you'd be able to see uh, England and Iceland and, and everything else on the other side of that. It, it would make sense on that one flat piece of, of earth that we've got there. But the dome, I get confused about the dome. So mm. does this mean oh, yeah, when what, you fly above that? Crash into we, the dome. Are you, are you above the dome or are you still in the dome? Oh. I'm not sure how big that dome so is. So many questions. That's right. Um, now, tell me, uh, is there any plans to get to the moon, though? Oh, well, not at this stage. This is really just about space tourism right, at this stage. Okay. But surely... Only a matter of time, surely. Exactly right. Once this goes for a certain amount of time, someone will say, forget that. Why don't you go and bounce around? Neil Armstrong looked like he had a bit of fun when yeah, he was bouncing sure. around on the moon. So why don't you do that as well? Yeah, no, that's right. And I want to go and see those retro reflectors. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Remember storing your flash drive, uh, your stuff on flash drives and floppy disks? Everything is on the cloud these days. And if I asked you what the cloud actually is, would you be able to describe it? There has to be a physical entity. And folks, that physical entity is a data center. Matt, these data centers have been growing at a rapid rate, haven't they? Rapid rate. And this is the scary part. So people don't always understand where stuff is when they say in the cloud. Oh, I've got it in the cloud, so therefore it is <laughs> somewhere out there. That's right. It could be on the moon for all they know. <laughs> Build some data centers on the moon. To give you an idea of how many data centers we have, the US at the end of 2022 had 2,701 data centers. Now, keep in mind that data centers are big. They've got a lot of computers. Typically, a rack will hold 42 servers in the one rack. Mm. And data centers I've been in, sometimes you can see a row of racks, not quite as far as the eye can see, but a lot of racks in the data center. So you look along a huge row of racks and then the next row of racks and you go, multiply each of those by 42, you've got a big number, and then multiply that number by 2,701, you've got another big number, and that's yeah. just the US. Wow. There's other data centers across the world. Now, didn't we used to, like, um, for a while there, we were looking to build mainframe computers, like really big boxes with stuff, and then we realized, well, when something goes wrong with that, it's so hard to replace. But if you've got a rack of, like, a smaller computer, then it's much easier to replace a unit out of that if something goes bung. Easy to replace that, but the other thing is that when you have that one rack, you could have a multiple number of companies using those servers in mm. that rack, for example, or it may well be an individual server. The way cloud computing works, you could actually have multiple organizations using one server on mm. that particular rack, and then you can scale up or scale down as you need. So uh, Ticket Tech, for example, might have a big concert coming up, a Taylor Swift concert or whatever. So they might ramp up their server capacity for a short period of time and then ramp it back down by using more servers. It gives you all this sort of flexibility. The other thing I find fascinating, and I've been in a few data centers, it's always great the security to get in, the retinal scan you've got to do, fingerprint scanners, all sorts of wonderful things. But then you get a bit of an appreciation of the technology in them. And, and there was one one time when I looked at it and I went down to the basement area and there's a whole range of gas bottles. And they told me as part of the safety briefing that if I saw a certain light go off, then there was some fire alarm that had been triggered or, or something had been triggered. So get out of there because I had about 30 seconds before there was no oxygen left in the whole data centre because oh, wow. these gas bottles downstairs were full of argon or some sort of similar gas that would then fill the whole data centre 
with something that wasn't oxygen so a fire <laughs> couldn't burn. You don't want sprinklers going off because you've got all these servers. No, that's right. You don't right. want them flooded with water. You've just got to starve it of oxygen. Starve right. of oxygen, which means that if you're a human in that area as yeah. well, you get a bit starved of oxygen as well. So as part of the safety briefing. your eyes pop. Well, <laughs> see this light go off, get out of there, and I didn't need to be told twice. Yeah. If I saw that light go off, I was going to be out of there because you would be there going, what's going, what's going? Oh, I'm finding a bit hard to breathe. Mm. And yep, you're on the ground. So, And obviously it's designed to flood very quickly with yeah. argon to put the fire out. I, I love the concept. I just didn't want to be in there <laughs> to see the concept. So this is where we're at at the moment, a lot of data centres. Now, to give you an idea of what's happening, various counties, in America, and this is across the world as well, are looking at where they're going to keep building these data centres. So they need connection to high-speed internet. They need good internet infrastructure nearby. They need power nearby. And a lot of them are trying to be built near areas where you've got lots of renewable power, which makes sense. Makes you don't, sense. You don't lose transmission or, or lose power in transmission, so that all makes sense. But, for example, there's one zoning change that's happening in Prince William County where they're trying to put aside... 2,100 acres, sorry for all the imperials this episode, but 2,100 <laughs> acres for new data centres. Amazon alone are planning on investing, this is one company, investing $35 billion in more data centres by the year 2040. Wow. So over the next 17 years, they'll invest $35 billion in more data centres. That just seems incredible. So this is happening around the world. They're actually quite good for a local economy because you get some fairly high-paid personnel that might work in there. There's a construction injection of funds as well for a local area, but then you get some fairly high-paid personnel to be there. Not that a lot of people spend time in the data centre, but you need some people just to be there and maintain and make sure it's still working and mm-hmm. test the argon gas to make sure it <laughs> works. But it's quite fascinating to see the incredible growth. And I did, I spoke at a conference one time and someone had a brilliant question. They said, with computing at the moment, we're saving money on people traveling, on people either flying to various locations, doing video conferencing. So we're being very green, we think. But then with all these data centers to run all this, is the whole IT industry greener than the good old-fashioned travel physical? And I don't know the answer to that, but it was a great question because you think you're being very green, you think you're being very good for the environment when you don't jump in a car or jump in a plane and travel to a meeting. But if you've got a whole bunch of internet and data infrastructure sitting behind the scenes to run this, well, all that electricity you're consuming, and if it's not all renewables, obviously. Well, I was going to say, yeah, surely if you've got renewables, then that gets you off the hook at least partially. You would think so. And and that's probably the target they're aiming for, to get them all running from green power. But in the meantime, if you're burning coal for all that, is it all a green industry? Is this better mm. for the environment than actually driving a car somewhere? And I, again, I don't know the answer. I need to do a lot of research to come up with the answer to that. But I, I thought it was a very inquisitive question. Well, the need for storage isn't getting less. No. I mean, we talked about a paperless society. We still have paper, but yeah, there's a lot of information out there. So much information. Maybe if everyone stopped taking photos of their cats oh, and videos of their lunch. cats, then, then their lunch, that would free up you know, probably 90% of the data space on, on data servers. <laughs> Big ships slowly moving away from diesel power, the need to get them to move even more efficiently through the water is getting ever more pressing. And if there's one little critter that likes to slow a a boat down, it's a barnacle. So Matt, what are the options for the modern boat builder in defending themselves from the nasty barnacle? 
Well, let's go back, first of all. I love the story back in about oh, the late 1700s. Sir Charles Middleton solved the issue of marine organisms encrusting ship hulls by encasing them in copper plates. Hmm. So he came along Sounds and said, clever. "Yeah, forget about that timber because look at all the stuff that's attaching itself to the hull. And he worked out that this was slowing ships down when they were being powered by sails. So they coated them in copper plates, which doesn't sound that logical. You're putting more weight into a boat to make mm. it faster. But by putting copper on them, it didn't allow all these different organisms to attach to the hulls of the boat. So brilliant idea, made it quicker. Now these, of course, are some of the boats you see that are flat at the front, so they hadn't worked out a bit of aerodynamics at that mm. stage because they do look funny looking at those old boats. So you're going, it's flat. How, how does that boat cut through the water when it's just a big <laughs> flat junction there at the front? So they, they worked out a few things there as they went forward. They've still got, in some of the paints they use now on some of the hulls, they actually have some copper in that as well because, again, that stops or reduces some of those organisms. Oh, so it wasn't about the texture of the copper itself and having a smooth finish there. No. It was about the actual copper itself being a repellent to the barnacle. A repellent to marine life. That's exactly right. So it wasn't, it wasn't about – the smoothness helped, and I'm sure that was better than the timber anyway. Yeah. But when you had that out in the water and you did your trip from the – the UK across to America with your tea or whatever you were taking across there, by the time you got to the other side, it was covered in barnacles mm. and all sorts of things. But no, it didn't attach to copper. So that was part of it. Obviously, anything you can do to make it smoother is better. One of the things they came up with was a biocide-based coating. The problem with that is that they found that this was poisonous to marine life. Oh, great. They don't stick to it but it was poisonous to marine life. <laughs> just kill everything putting it in, in the your ocean. wake, That's literally. Right. So they banned that back in 2008 because that was harmful for the environment. Okay, fair enough. So now you're looking at all these different firms that are coming up with a whole range of different textures and different coatings. The obvious thing they're trying to do is work out ways that you can stop things attaching to the boat. So you've got biofilms, you've got various substances that are being developed by various companies. And we've even talked about it before We've got some companies that have got bubbles that are being blown out. So as you go oh, through yeah, the yeah, water, that, yeah. Yeah, you're actually creating almost a little air film between the boat and the water. Yeah, so the boat's cutting through air and not water. Yeah, brilliant. So you've got a whole range of things. One company said that just their coating alone would reduce carbon emissions from that particular, from any ship that was coated with it, by 35%, which is a pretty big claim to make. But mm. when the world is focused on reducing carbon emissions, we've got ships that we've talked about before that have got sails, that have mm. got solar panels, they've got a whole range of things. But maybe part of the solution is just make them slipperier. Mm. It seems almost too simple, but it's a good step along the right direction. If you can reduce carbon emissions by 35% and keep everything else in the ship the same while other developments occur... That sounds like a pretty good idea. Sounds like a very good idea. Have you ever immersed yourself in a video game for so long that it starts invading your dreams? <clears throat> no, me neither. What about hallucinations? Have you ever started hallucinating from playing games? Well, it's a thing. And apparently there's been some study that's been going into it. Matt, I feel like this is the very thing that parents have been warning kids about for decades. It's funny, you know, when I'm sitting there watching my kids play a game, and some of the games I don't love the idea of them playing, but they're all adults now, surely they can do that responsibly. And I, I watch them shooting someone in a game or driving a car in a silly way. Can I say yeah. that? Can I be harsh in on a that? Dangerous in a stupid way? way? Dangerous yeah, yeah. way, thank you. And I say, surely that's not a good game for you to play. And they say, Dad, 
We know it's just make-believe. We know we're not going to drive the car like that and run someone over and then we hit the reset button, they pop back up. And I take them at their word and I hope they're okay. But after their 36th consecutive hour... (laughs) You start to wonder, is it having some impact? And they are finding that, yes, people are having impacts. They're having psychological impacts from some of these. This is coming from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. And they've been discussing a range of mental health disorders, including gaming disorder, or the one that you briefly mentioned there, gaming transfer phenomenon. So that's when people start hallucinating. They're playing the game so intensely. They're so immersed in it. Imagine a VR headset. You are completely immersed in this game. And it's solitaire. You, it's, it's solitaire. And you take that off and you see cards, cards everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you do get to that point where people are literally hallucinating. Now, wow. it sounds like a bit of augmented reality, but this is not augmented reality. This is people imagining they're seeing things. They've been so immersed in the game, it just has taken over their psyche. Dreaming is one thing. Absolutely. That's your cue to get out. <laughs> get out so, of it. <laughs> wouldn't you? you think so? But we're talking about kids here sometimes, yeah, and they're right. so yeah. focused on getting a great high score or playing with their friends, whatever it might be. But mm. dreaming doesn't seem to be the worst of it. Kids mm. dreaming about some of these games, well, you might dream about playing soccer. You might dream about doing some work, for example, about something you're focused on when you go to sleep at night. So it's not that unusual to dream about it. But when you start hallucinating, effectively Mm. dreaming while you're walking around, seeing things in your house, seeing things while you're driving around. That sounds like a bit of a cue. So GTP, not to be confused with chat GPT, (laughs) GTP, Gaming Transfer Phenomenon, is something that's affecting a lot of people. So the psychiatrist, the the College of Psychiatrists, estimates that 10% of Australian youths suffer from gaming disorder of some description. And psychologists at the Macquarie University have said, 10% 10% yes, but 3% have got to the point where they're starting to get gaming transfer phenomenon. 3%. Wow, that that's... seems like a high number to me Absolutely, that are getting some of these disorders. So I haven't talked to my kids about it yet. I'm going to talk to them a bit more about this and say, are you seeing things during the day? Are you seeing things when you're walking around at work or at uni that shouldn't be there? Oh, yeah, Dad, that happens all the time. Okay, get out now. But it When everything looks scary. so pixelated like Minecraft, um, <laughs> You know, That's right. back off the mind. Dad, why are you looking pixelated? That's not really me, son. <laughs> so, yeah, a bit scary and certainly something to be aware of, be conscious of. And I suppose the big thing with something like this is two people can play the same game in the same number of hours, but everyone's wired differently. And if you just happen to be wired in maybe one in ten, maybe those 10% of people that are wired yeah. a certain way, that same activity can have a different impact on you. So you've, you've really got to be careful of that and keep an eye on your friends and family and kids that yeah, are playing Just be games. aware of it. Mm. Yeah. And just like BJ McKay blasting his flat-nosed Kenworth through a billboard, we've just exploded yet another episode into smithereens leaving a trail of debris in our wake. Thanks for smashing out yet another awesome episode of Tech Talk, Matt. Well, at least with that debris, we can get some new Kurigami adhesive tape and go and stick it Maybe all back together again. Fix up that billboard. Well, I'm off to park myself outside Virgin Galactic to see if I can fill a seat for a no-show. Surely they'd let you sit in a seat that had been paid for already. It doesn't make sense to let it go to waste. Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. I'm your host, James Eddy, grateful for your company week after week after week after week. You've been listening to Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Tell your friends about us and bring them along in a week's time for another cracking episode. Until then, take care. We'll see you when we see you.